Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. If you're in the government acquisition world, whether you work for government or industry, this podcast is for you. We're here to help both sides understand each other just a little better. Our mission, to make government contracts better, one contract at a time. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition Solutions. Skyway helps you know more, do more, and win more in the government market. Visit skywayacquisition.com to learn more. Today's episode tackles common proposal myths. Let's get started. Hey, Kevin. Today we're going to talk about some common myths in the proposal world. We are. These are uh, some things that I thought were obvious when I was a contracting officer, and it turns out they're not. So spoiler alert, these are some of the things that I personally find. So no matter what I say, someone's going to disagree, and sorry. So I guess we'll see we'll hear. We'll hear from them if they do. Okay, since we're talking proposals... From an acquisition time zone perspective, we're in the RFP zone and the source selection zone, right? This is the part where when you're sending in the proposal, these are the kind of things that you need to be thinking about because this is how they're evaluated, which is part of the source selection zone. Right, and this is really important, Kevin, because proposals are the finish line. I like to think of this as it's the final step in a complex sale. And uh, I give credit to the Brutal Truth About Selling podcast I was on a couple weeks ago. And what was really interesting is that his whole concept is it's a complex sale, right? And he asked me to be on the podcast because government contracting, the ones that end in a proposal, it's a complex sale. And the last step to closing that sale is the proposal. So understand that they're important because you can get all the way to the finish line and blow it if you're not paying attention. And everyone wants to get to the finish line. The government folks, they want to get this done and award it and move on to the next one. And of course, the contractors want to get to the finish line because they want to win or, or at least move on to the next one. If they did lose, they got to go win something else. Yeah, mostly they want to win. But. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We all want to win. We're competitive. All right, the first myth we're going to talk about. The government evaluators already know what we can do. We don't have to explain it in our proposal. This one's never true. There is this con- <laughs> It's unfortunately common misperception, and it's, it makes me crazy how many contractors I've had to – to kick out of competitions because of things like this, where they didn't have their whole story, they didn't have the whole proposal, they didn't they didn't hit all of the points we needed, whatever. But the reason for that is you know, far time FAR fifteen three hundred five A specifically mandates that the elements of the proposal are what the contracting officer or, or the source selection authority is going to base the award on. It actually says assessed in the proposal. So what this means is that. The single source of truth <laughs> is that it is in your proposal. All of this stuff, it doesn't matter, and I've said this before, it doesn't matter if you have 4 million Twitter followers. It, if that's not relevant to the pro- proposal and it's not in the proposal, it's not going to be part of the decision. And this is kind of the 80-20 rule on steroids. <laughs> and remember, the 80-20 rule says that contract awards, government contracting, sales and government is 80% process and 20% relationship. And part of that process is the proposals. So, that process says what's in the proposal is all that counts. And as brutal as it may be that on your website it says you can do this, if it doesn't say it in your proposal, they may not be able to give you the contract. And that'll be a loser every time in a protest. If, if you don't have the story in your proposal and somebody says, hey, but we did, and they didn't have it in there, you can't give them the contract. It, it, that's why you get kicked out because the contracting officer is going to lose that battle every time if they award to somebody who doesn't have a strong proposal. Right. We wouldn't even need proposals if it was just based on what the government knew you could do. The whole proposal process would be a complete waste. You'd just be maybe submitting a price. How much would it cost? We know you can do it, right? And that's not what this is all about. 
And if you think about it, it really couldn't be any other way because the company has the contract for five years. They know the systems. They know the process. They've been delivering this, this equipment. And now they have a advantage because this is, this is what they do, right? So they really don't have to retell their story. They, they honestly could just say, well, we've been doing it for five years. You're happy. You know we can do it. If that were acceptable, then how would the new guys – they can never get in. And, and if, that, you're, if you're the, that company that has the contract, that's the way you want it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what the, the most frustrating debriefings I've had were that where people got beat by this were the incumbents because they're like, well, you know, we can do it. I'm like, I, I know, I, I know, I know, I know you can do it, but your proposal's got to say that you can do it. And that's, that's just different. That's a, that's a really uncomfortable debriefing to give. And I'll lead us into our next myth here, but it's even more tragic when you explain what you can do, but you explain it in the wrong part. So the evaluators get to read it, but they can't use it to evaluate your proposal. So what I'm trying to say is you say in the executive summary some very important evaluation information, but Section L said that that information needs to be in the technical volume or the management volume. And it's not in there. They can't go to the executive summary and evaluate that information because they didn't say they were going to evaluate the executive summary. So you have to have it in the right spot. And that's sort of a, a stretch on what you just said. Yes, they know it. Now they're even seeing it. But it's not explained where they told you to explain it. Sounds simple enough. That goes to myth <laughs> two. The second myth we want to talk about here is that the small details don't matter in the, the big picture of the proposal. And what I just talked about is one of those things, including the information in the wrong area of the proposal, is a problem. Yeah, I mean, this is almost never true, this, this myth, because, again, the importance of the details, are, they become crystal clear when you get kicked out, right? So like an, unsuc- <laughs> an unsuccessful offer, they often complain that they get kicked out using uh, the air quotes. I like that you use, use the politically correct term there, the unsuccessful offer. The losers yeah. often. Yes, but, well, okay, yeah, the, the losers are often get pretty cranky about the fact that I got kicked out on a technicality. I mean, I see stuff like that on LinkedIn all the time. It's like, oh, they kicked this out because we did X. And it's, well, they're trying to get to one. I, and nobody wants to hear that, but that's, that's the truth. I mean, the truth is the CEO is looking for a way to eliminate you if you've got 20 proposals. If he's only got two, Okay, different conversation. And, and we've, we've talked about that in other areas. Yeah. But if they've got 20 proposals and they're trying to award one, or even if it's a multiple award and they're trying to award three, sorry, you're making yourself low-hanging fruit. Right. <laughs> uh, don't, so they're gonna, don't give the government an easy way to kick you out. Don't let them just say, eh, this is fine. I've got a lot of other fine ones, so I'm going to get rid of the ones that didn't follow the small details. And, and this is one that, again, I sound like I'm being condescending, but I've seen, I've done this enough times that, for example, let me give you a couple of examples. Failure to comply with the limitation of subcontracting clause. What's that? It's for, it's for, it's for a small business set asides. It says that you're, you, the small business, are going to do a certain amount of, of the work. It's for services. You're going to do more than 50% of the work. You're not just going to have a large business do 90% of the work and you're going to you know, be, a, be a front for it, basically. That's why that clause is there. Several times I look at the structure of the contract and the number of subcontractors and what the subcontractors are doing, and I can't award them a contract because they're out of compliance with this provision. In the yeah, and, and then the numbers matter. If the small business is doing 48% of the work and the large is doing 52, and the rule was the small business has to do you know greater than 50% of the work, uh, you're out. 
That's all there is to it. Yeah. And so another thing, like not explaining all the required information, and this one is really big with me, is don't explain your pricing strategy. That's a good way to get kicked out. It seems simple, right? But I've a couple of times I've seen these where it's, they, and you sense the passion in my voice. It frustrates me. It's like, I, your price is good, but I don't understand how you yeah, got Tell them there. why it's good. Tell them how right. you came to that conclusion and lead the government to that same conclusion. The reason for that, by the way, is when you go into discussions or you go into the final evaluation and you need to be able to then compare price A with price B, you need to be able to say, well, this price is 20% lower because, or, or 20% higher because, and if there's no because, I, we're done. <laughs> Sorry. Um, another one is don't explain anomalies in your past performance. Um, I, I, I'd love to give the guy credit for this, but I was at a conference one, once and the guy said, if you have problems with your past performance, he said, find it, feature it, and fix it. And so if I see an anomaly in your past performance where you're like, well, I hope they don't see that. Yeah, and, don't, don't brush it under the rug yeah. there. <laughs> because depending, depending on this, even if it's a smaller contract, but even ones that are bigger with you know, six, seven digits, there's a person or persons, depending on the size, whose job is to look at your past performance and say, can they do this? So they're reading through those references and they're looking through the, all the systems to see if you have any any issues. And if they find one and there's no explanation of how you dealt with it and fixed it, see ya. And then my last one is that if you're just telling me what you do instead of showing me that that's frustrating because I, I, I get your marketing. I get, and, and again, you can make fun of me all day long. Cause I, I had to learn this when I when we first put all stuff on our website, it talked about, Hey, look at all the stuff we can do. It's like, okay, give me evidence. And now you see testimonials all over our website because we learned the same lesson. So that, that concept applies in a, in a proposal. And there's so many times that, that it's funny. I, I give Shelly credit. She calls it blah, blah. It's like that. If you're just telling me what you can do, anybody can say they can do things. So show them how you're going to do it. And yeah, that, I mean, you don't need experts to write your proposal. If it's just reiterating some, some technical manual, you know, if you, if you take out the ISO book and, and say, here's our, here's our process. And it's, you just cut and paste. It doesn't help so much. I was just having this conversation with a technical guy who was writing a proposal and he did a great job of saying, here's what we're going to do. And I walked him through, you need to say, here's what we're going to do. Here's the impact it's going to have. And here's the benefit to the government as a result. And if you don't have all three of those things, anyone could write the first part of here's what we're going to do. Right. And, and why do they, you have to tell them why they care. And, and that's a small, it's a small detail, right? But it makes a big difference because it, it keeps them from thinking that it's blah, blah. Or let me, let me rephrase that. It shows them that it's not blah, blah. Absolutely. It's, it's a different way to say it. All right. The next myth is one of my favorites. Proposals are a good marketing tool. And what I mean by that is this customer doesn't know us very well. So we need to submit more proposals to them so they get to know us and understand us better. And this myth is rarely true. Proposals are expensive marketing. Okay, it's, it's not going to be very. It's not going to be very effective to, in the in, and in the interest of simply sending a proposal to people because if it's not strong or focused, then you end up wasting your time in theirs. If you don't understand their mission, then you don't. Yeah, understand it might be their, counterproductive. Their, and, and a lot of times, I mean, I've gotten so many of those that I could see right through them that that within ten minutes. Again, this sounds really snarky, but it's a fact. When I, seeing through it, I I realized that. They didn't do more than pull this off the shelf and go, yeah, let's go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, and, those, those proposals are actually creating more work for the government. Every proposal that comes in, they have to review, they have to go through the process, they have to write stuff up. So when you send them a proposal that you know is just sort of – that's your marketing plan is to have them see another proposal of yours, but it's not very good. Think about how the government perceives that. They may get the impression rather than, hey, now I understand this company's capabilities, they may get the impression that – this company's a bunch of idiots. They keep submitting proposals that don't they're they're not even close <laughs> to solving our problems. So this is I'm I'm not gonna name names here, but this one kind of set me through the roof. I was reading on some government contracting experts website. They had a little white paper and they talked about when you get started in the government market, it's going to take you, and I'm quoting here, it's going to take you 22 proposals before you win your first one. So if you send in 10, you've got 12 to go. And I, I'm like, are you kidding me? That that's part of the problem. If if that's your strategy, it's like I'm just going to keep throwing darts at the wall until the balloon. <laughs> I'd pops. rather hit one, wow. submit one that I can win. Yeah, and and because think about it. I mean, functionally speaking, that's not only is it eating up your time, but think about how that's perceived. Yeah. If you send me, like, okay, let me put a sales hat on it. If you knock on my door 22 times and and offer me lobster, and I don't want lobster. Eventually, I'm going to get a guard dog to take you out. You know, it's like, <laughs> why do you keep knocking on my door? That's I'm simplifying it, but that's what it looks like. That's honestly what it looks like when you keep sending me something I don't want. After I've told you, I reviewed your proposal. This is not what we want. Wow, it's maddening. Yeah, so I mean, if your goal is to get familiarization <laughs> on the customer side, you're much better off by setting up some meetings, making some phone calls, doing other things, demonstrations to get their attention and explain to them what you're all about before you submit a proposal because. Yeah, proposals are – it's expensive to submit a compliant proposal and it takes the government time and money to evaluate your crappy compliant proposal. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, this idea of this is a complex sale and the proposal is the last step. Well, using proposals as marketing, you're, you're pretending it's the first step. We think about what you're doing. I mean, that, that's a very expensive way to try and shortcut that process. And that's why it's so maddening to hear those kind of stories because basically it's really expensive junk mail. So the argument goes here that you're using these proposals for positioning or marketing, trying to get yourself in front of the customer. And by that argument, you could argue that junk mail is a very effective way of getting in front of people. And it is. It comes to my mail. However, how much junk mail do you, do you read? I mean, most <laughs> of it you throw it out. Yeah, you're throwing it out, right? I've gotten a couple of proposals that they kind of felt like junk mail and they spent a lot of time on those. And even if they didn't, I spent a lot of time on them. So anyway, imagine how frustrated you would be if you were forced to review and evaluate the junk mail you get. Ugh. All right. So the next myth you already kind of hit on with your, you know, submit 22 proposals before you win kind of thing. But the myth is that you can win new business through a shotgun sales approach. What, what I mean by that is I'm just going to submit a bunch of proposals willy-nilly all over the place, and sooner or later, one will hit. And I, I got this, uh, this I, the idea, the analogy I used for this, I got from a, one of my favorite books called uh, On Selling by Mark McCormick, and he talks about, he calls them the wind-up doll strategy, where basically if I just spin around and, and, and hit enough people, somebody will buy something. And that's just exhausting. Depending on the service or product you're selling, the best case scenario is it might be mildly effective. Worst case scenario, it's really, really annoying, and you've done more harm than good. Yeah, it's 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 back to the junk mail thing. How how many sales do people get off of untargeted junk mail to every house on the street? You you may get lucky, but it better be really cheap because it's not targeted at all. 
And as we just talked about, proposals usually aren't cheap to submit to the government. Like you just mentioned, they better be cheap, right? Well, if you're doing a wind-up dollar strategy, you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to award on price. Because you're, you're, by, you're, you're playing a volume game. And a volume game normally comes with commoditizing, which comes with price. So you have to be very careful that you're not getting sucked into this vortex. Spend a little more money on targeting instead of submitting shotgun proposals. You probably have a better chance of success by narrowing down and selecting the right opportunities. And it's that that one of our clients calls it the uh, not to do list. We always have a conversation like once a month when we meet is the idea of what's what's on the what are we not chasing? And by the way, keep track of what you didn't chase. Because it's going to come back again the next year when that contract's recompeted and you're going to go, oh, we can do it. No, we already decided not to do that. See how easy that is to get sucked into that vortex. All right, one more myth. Now, this one is really easy to get excited about. The myth <laughs> goes that you can win work that you found on FedBizOps after it's already been published, after the RFP has been released. And the reason I say it's easy to get excited about is this is when the sales team or the capture guys run in and say, Look at what I just found on FBO. Let's submit a proposal. What do you do when that happens, Kevin? <laughs> you go back to your targeting. Uh, you should already have a, a series of go, no, go concepts. You know, we, you know, we call it your filtering system. You can word it any way you want, but you should immediately know it's either heck yes or heck no. We, and we did a, a podcast about that idea too, yeah. you know, targeting two one. And so that's, that's the easiest way to deal with this. But the, the reason that this myth's particularly pervasive is it is somewhat sometimes true. I mean, one of the things that's a funny story for us is that one of the first big contracts that we helped a client win was a situation like this, where the RFP dropped and they said, hey, we want to go after this. And it was a $60 million contract. Now, the rest of the story, which and I want you to hear this part, they already knew this customer. They understood this market. They were in, they were making the supply that actually this RFP was for, they had been in business doing this for like 10 years. There are a lot of other factors. So don't, don't just take the fact that the RFP dropped. And, they still and missed out on, on the, the prep, on the understanding that it was going to come out is what you're saying. But yes, it which was is part of their target already. It's just so easy when you see something that's like, oh, this fits. We can do this. We can do this. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a pervasive issue. And you don't want to be you know, completely reactionary. I'll give you a really sad example of this. Uh, after after leaving government, some of the companies that would call us out of the blue and say, hey, can you help us on this proposal? I go over and meet with them. And they say, oh, yeah, the RFP just came out. It's for this this giant $90 million contract. And I'm thinking, first thing that pops in my head is, okay, it's obvious to a lot of people that if it's a $90 million contract, it's real business. A lot of people have been watching this. But on top of that, the capability that this company has doesn't match with the size, with the scale, with the with the, the schedule, all of those things. But it, it's something that they could do. In a perfect world, if if they had partners, if they had a line of credit of $20 million, if, they, if, 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 if. Well, all those ifs can't be answered after the RFP. Now, in the, the this is why it can be true. If all those ifs are already answered and it happens to get through your filters and drop or how about this? It drops earlier than you thought. We have one we're dealing with now like that, where we think it might drop three weeks early. Okay, we've been thinking about it. We've been targeting it. We're adjusting. That is very different than saying, oh, this came through my email this morning from FBO. It's for vehicles. We have vehicles. Let's do it. That happens. <laughs> it's maddening. If you've yeah. never heard of the opportunity, never work with the agency, they have no idea who you are, just 
walk away. <laughs> and by the way, that's why the RFP score is one of the tools we have for our community members is please run the RFP score before you even consider calling us and saying, hey, let's, let's put a proposal together because that's what we're going to tell you. And by the way, the RFP score is included in your, in your membership so you can spend 10 minutes <laughs> and save yourself the headache. So think about this from the acquisition time zone perspective. What should you be doing before an RFP is released? You should be understanding the opportunity. And if it's something complex, companies are writing their proposals before the RFP is released, before the draft RFP is released, possibly. They've written proposals, but certainly when the draft comes out, they're writing like crazy and waiting for that final RFP so they can wrap it up. If you're coming into the game with 30 days until proposal due date and your competitors have already been writing for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, what do you think your chances are of writing a more compelling proposal? That's the rest of the story is even if you wrote a good one, you're not the only person doing this. <laughs> you know, there's competition. All right, I'm going to run through the myths again real quick to sum it up. Number one, the evaluators already know what we can do. We don't have to explain it in our proposal. That's wrong. You do have to explain it in the proposal. They can't evaluate what they know you can do. They can only evaluate what you've written in the proposal that you can do. Number two, small details don't matter. Yes, they do. Don't give the government an easy way to remove you from the competition if you're writing the proposal. Number three, use proposals for marketing to the government. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> it's a very expensive way to, to go about your marketing. Uh, the fourth one is the shotgun sales approach. This is how to do it. Just submit a bunch of proposals and sooner or later, one will win. Doubtful. Sooner or later, one will win, but it may be you know $100,000 from now. <laughs> you better know that going in. And that leads to the last myth is that you can win work that, that you find on FBO after the RFP is already released. So it's not impossible, but it is much more unlikely. And it's a really hard way to run a, a capture process. I mean, if, that, if, you, if you inherently believe that you can do this and it means all you're doing is looking at FBO, you're making your life harder than it needs to be. That's the point of talking about it. All right, let's wrap this up with why should the government care so much about this? Why should the industry care so much about perpetuating myths? So if you're on the government side, don't assume that contractors know this stuff. The big guys do, or most of them do or should, but there's lots of smaller companies here that may not understand why the government market is different from the commercial market, where particularly with the, the first myth – in the commercial market, if you know what a company can do, you may just be looking on, on price. They don't have to write a proposal that you can only look at those words that they write down, right? So don't, don't perpetuate these myths. Help contractors understand that the RFP rules. So if you want good companies, help them write good proposals. For them to find this out during the debriefing, it, that's brutal. It's, it, it, it's a good way to, it, if you feel like you all wasted your time, this is why people hate working for the, with the government, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, don't, don't let that be the, the time they find out that this part of the FAR exists and why it exists. I do have one more for the government side. I do want to mention this point that, that the government folks need to understand that when you don't tell, any, tell them anything until the RFP drops, you're perpetuating that myth. That's, that's where this, that's why they do this, because they think they're not going to get anything then until then. They don't think to ask. So the more, the more closed minded we are with our, or not closed minded, the more closed we are with communication, we're, we're 
perpetuating this myth. That's a really good point. It fits right with our communicate, communicate, communicate message that we're always trying to spread here. The why industry should care so much about this is that's the easy part. Writing proposals is expensive or can be expensive. Simple proposals, not so much. Complex proposals, very expensive. Could be millions of dollars. And, and they're big time vampires if if you're not doing the right ones. Uh, and, and What's more it, expensive than writing proposals? Not winning them because then you just you, – now you're, you're basically – the best case scenario is that it was very expensive marketing. Right. Which Writing a winning proposal myths. has some payback. Writing a losing proposal sucks. <laughs> but it's going to happen. Let's, let's not be unrealistic. It is going to happen now and then. But don't, don't go in expecting it to happen. Good grief. So to wrap this up really tightly, I guess we'll say it that way, is to ask the question, are you playing to these myths? Are you perpetuating them? By doing things like not communicating before the RFP comes out, by not understanding that, yes, the proposal needs to be compliant. And if you do fewer of them, you're going to be more able to spend the time to make them compliant. And, and do you know what's a myth versus what's a fact? And the fact is the thing that's going to show up during the debriefing or it's going to be the reason that something is protested. And that's not an opinion. And so understand that the, how this process works so that you don't step on these landmines because so many of these myths we talked about are – they're sucking up people's time. They're, they're making government contracting worse. So let's stop <laughs> doing that. The opposite of what we want to do, which is to make government contracting better. Bingo. <laughs> All right. I like that wrap up, Kevin. If you're listening, remember, if you like the CO podcast, if you're learning anything from it, please tell a friend so that they can find us too. The best way for us to share this information that we're giving away for free is for you to tell people about it who you think it will help. We know you're on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, and so are we. So look us up there, post your questions, post your comments, and again, just share the content. Easiest way to spread it around. Remember that our listeners drive a lot of our topics that we discuss here. So if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, please send it to me at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. All right, Kevin, I'll talk to you later. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for another exciting episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or complaints, send me an email at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Is that too short? No, no, it was perfect. Are you going to do your spoiler alert? Okay, all right. Sorry, I, mean, I was waiting. I, I was waiting. I was waiting to be judged. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was judging. I, I know. I, I used to be in the producer. Okay, or I used to have the producer ride my ass here. All right.